0: Well, let's pray together as we uh, come to God's word together. Father, we thank you for your goodness in so many different ways. We thank you now for the privilege, the blessing of your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us through the prophets and through the apostles and that we have your word written to us. And we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Father, we pray that you would feed us now so that we might have life in Jesus' name. And we pray this uh, for his glory. Amen. Well, I was, When I was in my early 20s, um, I encountered some Jehovah's Witnesses. And knowing the, these Jehovah's Witnesses knew that I was an evangelical Christian... And they were well-trained to exploit my weakness. And what was my weakness, you might wonder? It was my view of the future. See, at the time, I did not have a well-studied biblical expectation of the future. And by biblical expectation of the future... I do not mean the specific mechanics of the end times. Who is the Antichrist? Will there be a rapture of the church before the return of Christ? Will the church undergo the great tribulation or will we be uh, exempt from it? Will there be a literal 1,000 year earthly reign of Christ before the end? Those are the questions about the future that many Christians want to know. And there are lots of debates and discussions to be had about the specific mechanics of the future. Um, why don't you spend your whole ABF time today discussing those things? I'm sure your ABF leader is well prepared for that. But what these—that's not what I mean by the, uh, the the biblical expectation of the future. What these Jehovah's Witnesses knew is that because I was an evangelical Christian in America, I probably didn't have any biblical expectation about the main things concerning the future. And they were right. When they asked me what I expected eternity to be like, I had no idea. My expectation of the future was informed more by Renaissance paintings and by the entertainment industry than it was informed by Scripture. Um, In fact, I went to... um, Wheaton College and Wheaton College has this wonderful um, Billy Graham Museum at the Billy Graham Center on the campus. And in the Billy Graham Center Museum, I'm probably going to get in trouble for criticizing this, but but there's this thing called the Heaven Room. Has anyone ever been there? It's uh, it's this it's a cool room. It's a cool room, but it's called the Heaven Room, and you go you go in there, and it's It's got all these mirrors done in such a way that when you're in there, all you see is endless clouds and blue sky. But it turns out that is not uh, the the future of eternity at all. Um, Maybe the unbiblical idea of the future that I had back then matches with yours. I imagined an eternity where we would go up to heaven into the clouds And we would live up there in the clouds with Jesus forever. Angel wings and harps and blue skies. One long, celestial, bottomless church service. And perhaps you have thought, I'm not sure I want to spend eternity in the clouds. Why would I want to go up there? Maybe five minutes, but forever? What would I do up there? And then the Jehovah's Witnesses brought out their magazine, which described in full color a totally different eternity. They explained that according to the Bible, we would spend eternity with God on the earth in a completely renewed creation. There would be people and animals and agriculture and houses and lands. It would be a paradise, but it would be an earthly paradise. And they explain that we would live forever on the earth in a perfect world, enjoying God and his new creation forever. And as it turns out, The Jehovah's Witnesses who came to my door were exactly right on this point, on their view of the future. In that one respect, they had a more biblical view of eternity than I did. Now, they had a grossly unbiblical view of who Jesus is. They had a grossly unbiblical view of how we can attain eternal life. But about what life would be like in eternity They were dead on. And they used that ignorance that many Christians have to exploit and to attract uh, people to their cult. How we need to have, as Christians, a biblical expectation of the future. Because our view of the future will determine our behavior in the present. Peter's writing to Christians Like us, Christians who are living in this world, who are facing false teachers, Christians who have to deal with scoffers, Christians who are tempted to live only for this world in sensuality. And Peter writes to strengthen us in the apostolic truth. He wants to remind us of the future that God has promised so that we will be strengthened to live godly lives in the present, in preparation for that future. How is your life going these days? Are you struggling to live a God-honoring life these days? Are you dabbling in or wallowing in the mire of sin? Are you losing your way, floundering in your faith? it might be that your view of the future that awaits us is floundering. Well, chapter 3 of Second Peter is all about the future that God has promised to strengthen us. And this is the third Sunday that we're spending in chapter 3. Peter has already reminded us that the day of Christ is coming. And that it will come like a thief when we least expect it. And on that day of Christ, when Jesus comes again, the whole cursed, created order will be burned, Peter says. Both heaven and earth will be burned, and all mankind will be judged. All of our deeds will be exposed, and we will be judged before the holy presence of the living God. That's the future that is coming. This world is coming to an end under the judgment of God. And each one of us and all of our deeds will be exposed under the searchlight of God's judgment. Well, if we have that future in mind, that is going to change the way we live day by day, minute by minute. And then this whole old, cursed, created order will be replaced. It will be replaced with a new creation, verse 13. Peter writes, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the future. Not an ethereal cloud dimension. No wings and harps. Not an ungrounded spirit realm, not an endless church service, but a new creation. Just as earthly as this one, maybe more earthly than this one, because this one is corrupt. An eternity in an uncorrupted, uncursed, completely unspoiled new creation. That's what God has in store for his people It will be a place, Peter says, in which righteousness dwells. No injustice. No suffering. No sin. No scarcity. We will not need the compassion fund in the new creation. And John gives us a vision of this new creation in Revelation 20, which was read for us earlier. John writes... And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the future. All things new, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And if that is our future, what should our lives look like now in preparation for that reality? That's Peter's focus in these last few verses. How should we live in light of the day of Christ that is coming and the new creation that will follow? And the first response is to pursue spotlessness. We see this in verse 14. Peter writes in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, Waiting for what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter calls us to be diligent. Be diligent means to put forth considerable effort. And what are we supposed to put forth considerable effort for? To be found by him in a certain state. Without spot or blemish and at peace. The call to spotless living starts back in verse 11. Uh, Let me read verse 11 again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In light of the day of Christ, we are called to pursue spotless living, clean and pure, morally upright living. And in verse 14, the imagery of being found by him is the idea of surprise discovery. When Jesus breaks down the door at his return, when he pops in unannounced, what will he find us doing? How will we be found by him? In light of Christ's return, we're called to moral purity and clean living so that when we are found by him, we are ready. We're also called to be found at peace when he comes again. This means living at peace with God and with others. Romans 12, 18 also calls us to peace. Paul writes, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I find that to be incredibly realistic. If possible, he says, and as far as it depends on you. Uh, there are some people you're just not going to be able to get along with. You're not going to be able to have peace with everyone because peace is a two-way street, but God calls us to live peaceably with all as far as it depends on us. And that is how Peter calls us to live so that when Jesus comes again, we'll be found living pure and spotless lives, we will be found by him living at peace. This pursuit of peace is in contrast to the moral and relational chaos of our world. If there's no return of Christ, if there's no judgment of God, there is no new creation coming, then we would just live for the world, wouldn't we? And that is the way of the world. The world lives for its passions to satisfy the lusts of the flesh. Unrestrained living breeds chaos and conflict in relationships. Everyone living for the passions of the flesh is like the Jerry Springer show. It's chaos. It's self-indulgent. It's people devouring one another. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to pursue spotlessness, moral purity, and peace in the light of the day of Christ, which is coming. If Jesus came today, how would he find you? If Jesus came today, he'd find you in church, right? But in the bigger picture... How would he find you? How is your life now? Is it a life of spotlessness, blamelessness? Are you living at peace? The new creation that is coming will be a pure place in which righteousness dwells. It will be a place of spotlessness and peace. And the impure will not enter it. In Revelation 28, we read the bad news of the new creation. John writes, Revelation 21, 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Impurity is not going into the new creation. So by pursuing spotlessness, we are living like God's redeemed people and we are practicing for our future as God's redeemed people. But perhaps you hear that list of impurity and you are thinking, I've done some of those things. I'm anything but spotless. I still have struggles with sin. I believe in Jesus, and I'm still not what I should be. What does that mean for me? Well, this call to diligently pursue spotlessness is not making ourselves qualified for the new creation by perfectionism. It is not making us qualified for the new creation by our own effort as though we could ever become spotless by our own efforts. No, at the heart of Christianity is God's provision of a Redeemer. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist declared. Jesus is the only true and spotless one. He is the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, and we are washed clean by his blood, by his atoning sacrifice. We're made spotless by faith in him, not by our attaining perfection as if that could ever be accomplished. But still, those who have been made spotless by the blood of Christ are called to live spotless lives. We are called to live in moral purity. The second way that we wait well is to study the scriptures. And this point comes from verses 15 and 16. Let's read them again as a refresher. Peter writes, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There's quite a surprise in these verses. See here the apostle Peter is giving his endorsement to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Peter is commending the letters of Paul as worthy of our attention due to the wisdom God has given him. Now that is remarkable considering the conflicts that Peter and Paul had in the early years. Notice in verse 16 that Peter says... There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Um, Paul is a serious thinker, and some of his writings require serious thought. Uh, If you're you're not willing to put on your thinking cap, you are not going to be able to track with the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Uh, I'll be studying the book of Romans on, on sabbatical and Lord willing, when I come back, we'll be uh, going through the book of Romans together. And I can already tell that we are going to be expected to put on our thinking caps. And Peter uh, acknowledges as much. He says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And Peter also says that the ignorant and the unstable twist Paul's teaching to their own destruction. Some people just don't like Paul. Have you noticed that? I've I've heard so many people say, Jesus, I'm good with Jesus, but Paul, hmm. Some people don't like Paul because he's hard to understand. Other people don't like Paul because they understand what he says and they just don't like it. But Peter is saying, pay attention to Paul's writings. Don't disregard them. Don't twist them. But the degree of Peter's endorsement of Paul's writings is quite surprising. Look again at verse 16. He says, which ignorant and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Do you see the implication? Peter's apostolic endorsement of the writings of Paul is that they are part of the Scriptures. Now, we know that. I mean, we have the the writings of Paul in our Bibles. Um, But Peter is commending Paul's letters as part of the apostolic witness, part of God's Word, Even here in the first century, maybe around 64 AD, the apostle Peter is writing this. He is offering his apostolic endorsement of the writings of another apostle, Paul, as holy scripture. It's interesting, sure, but it's also important because even today, we have myriads of people who try to disregard Paul. Some people try to create what they call red-letter Christianity. Have you heard of this? Um, Anybody here have a red-letter Bible where the words of Christ are in red? There's nothing wrong with that necessarily, unless we start thinking that the red letters are more important than the other ones. Um, The red-letter Christianity movement is where let's just focus on the teachings of Jesus Let's just try to live by those and not trouble ourselves with the writings of the apostles, especially Paul. And this so-called red-letter Christianity is pretty popular, especially if you don't like Christian teaching on things like the wrath of God or hell or issues like gender and sexuality. But Jesus actually had a lot to say about all of those things. And when we look at what Jesus says, what Peter says, what John says, what Paul says, they accord with one another. But here Peter is pretty clear. Peter would find this so-called red-letter Christianity to be utterly ridiculous. He calls us as Christian believers to pay attention to the writings of Paul as Holy Scripture. And what does he call those who ignore and twist and disregard the teachings of the Apostle Paul? Ignorant. Unstable. Headed for destruction. So according to Peter, the apostolic teaching of Christianity is not a later edition of Christianity, Christianity 2.0, Christianity corrupted by man, Christianity reinvented by the apostles. According to Peter, apostolic Christianity is the only Christianity. It's all of one piece. Jesus called Peter, and he called Paul, and he gave them his word. And these men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is breathed out by God, Paul says. And Peter is calling the writings of Paul part of the Scriptures. The message that Peter and Paul preach accords with the life and teachings of Jesus. And the apostolic writings explain and apply the work of Christ highlighting its significance. So to put it bluntly, if you only have red-letter Christianity, you might not have Christianity at all. You might just be going to hell. And the reason I say that is because of what, Paul, uh, what Peter says in verse 16. He says that those who twist Paul's apostolic writings of Scripture do so to their own destruction. So, do you see what that means for us as we prepare for and wait for the day of Christ? We need to study the Scriptures We need to take in all that God has said to us from the prophets and from the apostles. We need to listen to their teaching because there will be those who come our way twisting the truth, ignorant and unstable people twisting the truth, leading to destruction. And they're all around us. Verse verse 17 warns us, We must take care, Peter says, that we are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose our stability. See, we need to take care not to fall for the twisting of the Scriptures. And in order to do that, we need to be acquainted with them ourselves. So how do we do that? How do we avoid getting carried away by the error of lawless people? Well, the imagery here of being carried away reminds me of my own paranoia as a parent. As my kids were little, we would never let them go off on their own. We always were trying to keep an eye on them. I was always concerned that some stranger danger would try to grab them and carry them away. But a few years ago, one day I realized, I can relax. Nobody is going to carry Dylan away, he's over six feet tall. (laughs) That is the best way to avoid being carried away. The best strategy is growth. The more we grow, the harder it is to carry us away. That's that's the same thing spiritually as well. The more we grow, the more ballast we have to stand firm spiritually. In verse 17, Peter warns that we should be on the alert for spiritual kidnappers who will want to come and carry us away. There is danger about. We need to be on the alert. We need to take care that we're not carried away by the error of lawless people. But verse 18 tells us how to ward them off, but grow. 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 in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That's the strategy to avoid being carried away. Grow in the word. Grow in God's truth. And specifically, Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The goal of our time in the scriptures, the goal of our study of God's word is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the goal. And as we grow in the word, the goal is that we will grow in Jesus, and that we will grow in his grace. Some people use grace as a free pass. A free pass for spiritual laziness and spiritual ignorance. Relax, man. It's all grace. Just chill out, man. Don't worry about growth. But do you see how Peter puts these two things together? Grow in grace. Peter calls us to the diligent pursuit of grace. We're called to grow in grace, and that growing in grace involves the diligent pursuit of God through the Scriptures. And growing in grace goes hand in hand with knowledge. Grow in grace and knowledge. But spiritual growth is not simply the accumulation of facts. We are growing toward a person. Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All of our pursuit of spiritual growth should be leading us closer to him. Some people don't seem to want to grow. They want a minimum investment Christianity. Just give me a nominal amount, but not a life-changing amount. They want to have Jesus, but they don't want to grow in the grace and knowledge of him. But the less we grow the more vulnerable we are to being carried away. We need ballast, spiritual maturity to keep us from being carried away. Are you growing? Are you growing in the scriptures? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Or are you just assuming it, taking it for granted? The minimal amount that you have is just enough for you. No more thanks. If you're not growing, what are you going to do about it? Maybe you can make time for a Bible study group where you work into your schedule the discipline of growing together with others. There's a whole lot of them to choose from. Maybe you need to take Peter's endorsement of Paul's writings personally. Maybe you could embark on a personal study of the writings of the Apostle Paul. They may be hard to understand, but by them, we will certainly grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This letter of 2 Peter is the last recorded words of Peter, the apostle. And verse 18 is the last of the last recorded words of the apostle Peter. And they are such beautiful words. What does Peter do with his last words? He writes, To him, To our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Isn't that a beautiful way to end? Isn't that the highest and greatest goal for Jesus, to receive glory? And how worthy he is of glory both now and to the day of eternity. Now and forever, he is worthy of glory. This is what the heavenly multitude sings in Revelation 5, 9. They sing this of Jesus the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And in Revelation 5.12, the heavenly multitude cries out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, That is the goal of all history. That is the centerpiece of all history. That is the culmination of the new creation. And that is how Peter ends his letter, giving praise and honor and worship to Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, our Lord and Savior. And may that be the ultimate aim of our lives as well. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we have read these words of your Apostle Peter and we have heard the clear goal of all of history that the day of Christ is coming, that you are coming to bring in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, and we are called to, to be found ready, to be believing in Jesus, to be pursuing spotlessness, to be living morally pure lives, to be living at peace. We ask that you would help us to do that, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we will not be carried away. Help us to do that for your glory because you are worthy of all glory, now and forevermore. Amen.